Thank you guys very much. What a perfect song, perfect prayer of our hearts to pray before this message in particular. We've been talking about the Trinity off and on for the last three months, and today would be a perfect time to end this series. Next Sunday is Easter. Roy Lytle, our missionary from Suriname, who you do not want to miss, will be here in two weeks, and then after that, students start scattering. So it would be a perfect time, but there's just no way we can stop. Unfortunately, for the students who will be scattering, the sermons in late April and early May are going to be full of application for this theology that we've been trying to cram into our heads. And I am grateful that you have hung in because this has been deep waters for some. Some of you say, yeah, yeah, I knew all that stuff. Um, but then a lot of folks have said, this is really, you know, I'm trying to hang with it. It's been kind of tough. But... The application is some of the best part that talking about how to witness to people who don't believe that Jesus was God and how to spot error and heresy even in books that are written about the Trinity and things that are said about the Trinity. So a lot of that stuff, uh, in addition to what we can learn in our own lives from just the doctrine itself of the Trinity, is going to be covered later. So even now, let me make a pitch for you to get online and listen to some of those messages afterwards, especially if this has been of real interest to you. Today's message involves a topic that that creates great controversy in the church. And in fact, I just want you to be in a spirit of prayer that that does not happen here. We're going to disagree about certain things along the lines of what we're talking about today. You can tell that I spent a great deal of time trying to come up with a clever title for this message. And after mere seconds of thought, I came up with Tongues and the Holy Spirit's role in or work in, the, in, in Acts, as in the book of Acts. doesn't cover everything, but at least it gets us started. It's a foundation for understanding this controversial subject with regard to how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And there is a definite possibility, just because of the feedback I got after the first message, that we will come back to this after we wrap up the Trinity and talk more about it. Because it really, today is going to create more questions than it is give, provide answers. And what answers are given today, some of you are going to say, I don't buy that. And so we may need to deal with it more thoroughly. Furthermore, I'm 15 minutes later starting than I normally would be. And this is a long message. So settle in. (laughs) If you get up and leave, we're going to mock you on the way out. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll talk fast. You listen fast. And we'll try to get through reasonably close to 12 o'clock. You know, during this course about the Trinity, we have recognize that there are certain things that are non-negotiable in our understanding of the Trinity. God is one, and yet He's three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You must believe that in order to be saved. I'm convinced of that. It's a non-negotiable truth. don't have to understand it, but you have to believe that Jesus is God, Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God, and God is one. There's a fair amount of difference, however, in the way committed Christ followers understand the work of different persons of the Trinity and particularly the Holy Spirit in the church church's life today. And it's not that those that, that disagree with me or disagree with you on secondary matters are promoting heresy. That's not the point at all. But there is no question that there are significant differences in the way that believers understand the Spirit's role in the Trinity What is his place in the Trinity? How are we to relate with him? And what is his role in the church today? 
And I, I don't want you to think that you can't know or, or be fairly convinced about what you believe about the Trinity, but do understand that that others who love the Lord just as much as you do may have a little bit of a different understanding about the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives today. And we would do well to deal gently with those with whom we disagree. I doubt there's anyone here who would say, you know, I am convinced that I am 100% right about all the doctrine that I, ha- I believe. Is there anybody today that would say, I'm right about everything? Well, if you are, you have forgotten where you were three years ago and how you no longer believe those things that you believed three years ago and how your understanding of God has grown and you say, oh, okay, I thought I had that right, but maybe I didn't. We, we would do well to take a lesson from Snoopy, of all people. Maybe you've seen the Peanuts cartoon where Snoopy's sitting on the, uh, uh, the roof of his doghouse, typing away, and Charlie Brown says, Hey, I hear you're writing a book about theology. And then he goes on to say, I, I hope you have a good title. <laughs> well, Snoopy's going to have a good title, isn't he? And so, you know, Snoopy says, Yes, I have the perfect title. It is. Have you ever considered the fact that you might be wrong? That, that would be a great, has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? That would be a great title for a theology book. Now, a lot of us would say, no, I haven't considered the fact that I'm wrong. I'm convinced about what I believe. And that's a good thing when it comes to the fundamental truths of Scripture. The Trinity, the, the fact that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And the authority of Scripture, it's a good thing for you to have that rock-solid commitment and stand on those types of doctrines. But be careful about the areas where godly believers differ and disagree. Always have a teachable spirit and be open to God's truth. But do your best to be guided by Scripture. And that's what we're going to talk about today. As we read the text this morning in Acts 2, verses 1 to 24, you're going to see very quickly that there are a lot of things that people disagree about in this one passage alone. I don't pretend to have all the answers, though I do have a theologically informed opinion. I've studied this a great deal. I've prayed about it. That doesn't mean that I'm infallible. None of us are. We're not going to stay in Acts 2, but we'll look at other key texts in Acts where we see reference to the gift of tongues and the baptism of the Spirit. We talked about that two or three weeks ago, baptism of the Spirit. And we're going to see an instance where that occurs today that's a little bit confusing as far as our understanding from a couple of weeks ago. But because of the time constraints, I won't be able to mention all of the different uh, thoughts about these issues, but rather I'll spend the time giving what I think to be uh, the proper interpretation of the various text. Um, I tell you what, for uh, time, I want you to read through verse 24, but I want us to just, we're going to stop in verse 15, Myra, uh, just for time's sake. We're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, because I don't want to feel rushed on some of the other things. So if you would, please stand as we read God's Word together. Actually, we got to go through 24. It's just, it's, we just have to do it. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire 
appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. and They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only 9 a.m. It's the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's pray. Father, on this day, this particular day, in which we remember your triumphal entry, and oh, Lord, how I wish we could be focusing on that, and on the week of passion this morning. But, Lord, we believe that you have directed us to this other place. But on this day, We give thanks for the incredible plan that you became man. You sent your son, who was God in the flesh, to live a perfect life and then die as a substitute for our sins. And now, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because death couldn't hold him, We rejoice in you because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We pray that you would give us understanding this morning and a heart of unity. Even, Lord, if we differ one with another on our understanding of the important work of the Holy Spirit in our lives personally and in the life of the church today. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What a day this would have been to be to be in Jerusalem on Pentecost. I mean, Jesus had promised the disciples, he said, 
Well, he had told them, the, the Spirit is with you, He shall be in you. And this day was the fulfillment of that promise and that prophecy. The Spirit of God had come upon people in, in, until Pentecost in, in different ways, but now on Pentecost He came to indwell believers and He would be with them forever. That promise is told over and over in the New Testament. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, He is with you forever. Forever. He's never taken away. Always be with you. So Pentecost was the time when the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers. Three supernatural phenomena uh, announced the Holy Spirit's arrival as indwelling the church from, from this point on as this new, in this new way. There was the sound of a rushing wind. There was appearance of tongues of fire. But the, but the phenomenon that was given the most print in the book of Acts and the most attention by the Lord is... This use of tongues or the ability to speak with languages that the person who is speaking previously did not know. Most likely these people were already in the church. That could be what it means or in the temple. What it could mean, be what it means when it says they were in a house together. We know that there were 120 of them, men and women. And could have been though that they were in one of the rooms of the temple. But regardless, they got to the temple in a big open area very quickly and people rushed to say, what is this sound? I mean, there's this all this wind. What's going on? And they come and they see these uh, uh, the appearance of tongues of fire resting on their heads. And most, if not all of them, are sharing the gospel in a language that they had not known, but a la- in the home languages, the hometown languages of the people who were in Jerusalem. Now, since all the people who were doing the speaking were Galileans and they were considered kind of backward then it was amazing to the hearers that they were speaking the gospel. I would imagine with perfect diction and grammar. And they were saying, this Galileans? You know, I grew up in Fuqua Not a bad place to be right now. It was tough when I was growing up. Guy and DJ and, and Raleigh talked about two flags over Fuqua. Man, if you were from Fuqua, people laughed at you. They thought you were a backwards hick. Well, that's, that's pretty much what people thought about Galileans. And yet they're proclaiming the gospel in languages that they didn't even know. So the Holy Spirit came in very obvious power on that day. And the primary manifestation was this ability to speak a language in a language that the person who was speaking didn't even know. So does the Holy Spirit still fall on us in this manner today? Is this the manifestation of His presence, is this manifestation of His presence always the gift of tongues? First of all, remember that the book of Acts is a record of how God moved from an old covenant that He had with His people to establishing a new covenant with His people. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, people were saved the same way they are now, by faith. But it was faith in the promises of God. And they understood that there was a very strong connection with the law. They weren't saved by keeping the law. Jesus showed us that nobody can do that. Even if we do all the right things, our motives are wrong. He did keep the law perfectly, which was why he was a perfect sacrifice for us. But we knew, Hebrews tells us, that the blood of sacrifice and bulls could never take away sins. So they weren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved by faith. 
But there was this connection, this incredible connection with the law that everybody understood. If you're a believer, if you are a follower of God, you keep the law. And if you don't, it's an indication that there's just nothing there. Well, this new covenant is saying it's not about keeping the law. It's about believing in Jesus. And God confirmed that he was doing, working in his people in a new way now by this manifestation of tongues. It was confirmed by miracles. Just in the same way that Jesus, Peter said, and that's why I said let's go ahead and keep reading in in, in Acts 1. Peter said, hey, look, you knew who Jesus was. God confirmed his divinity by all of these miracles and signs. You ignored him. And with wicked hands, you crucified the Lord of glory. Now, he's coming in a new way to his people, to his covenant people. And he says, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit is confirmation that Jesus is now the only way. It's important to know that all those who followed Jesus at this point were Jews or Gentile proselytes. Those who had said, I believe the God of Israel is the true God and if I have to become a Jew to be connected to him, that's what I'll do. And, and so they were proselytes. Now, one important fact to recognize here is that these were known languages being spoken, uh, not the ecstatic babblings of people who were in a trance. They were speaking a language that they didn't know. This happened with my brother-in-law. I've, t- I've told this story not too long ago, but my brother-in-law was in Jamaica. Southern Baptist David Faithful, I mean, man doesn't know anything about Satan except what he reads in here. He's not looking for Satan behind every bush. But he's in Jamaica at the deaf school, and this deaf woman falls out in a trance. I mean, in a demonic fit. A demon has taken over. It's very clear. And the pastor says, you, talk to her. And Dave says, oh, okay. And he gets his youth group together, and they all pray, Lord, give us power. So he goes over. David's wife, Mary Beth, who knows sign language very well because her brother's deaf, Kneels on the floor. She puts the lady's head in her in her lap. And for 30 minutes, this deaf woman, with her eyes closed, carries on a conversation. My David didn't have a voice like this. She's deaf. Her eyes are closed. David's talking to a demon. It's just very obvious. After 30 minutes, he said, I have no idea why I said it, but I said, Lord, or I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to blow yourself out of this woman. She puffed up her cheeks and blew and blew and blew. And then she looked up, just physically exhausted, and went, thank you. And then David, who knew a little bit of sign language, perfectly signed the gospel to her of Jesus Christ. I said that God gave you the gift of tongues. And my son, who was standing there, said, no, it was the gift of fingers. But, you know, either way, it's, it's, that's what was happening. It's a foreign language that he didn't know. He did not know sign language nearly as well as he communicated that day. God, I believe, gave him the gift of tongues. That's what was happening on this day at Pentecost. They were telling, when you think about it, what, 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 were they, what was the message they were given? About the great power of the Holy Spirit? No, they were telling about Jesus, remember? We've talked about this a lot The Holy Spirit's role is to magnify Jesus. And that's what they were doing. They were telling people about Jesus. And they heard this gospel and then they believed it. And and, and the proclaiming of the gospel 
combined with the miraculous use of tongues, was confirmation that from now on, God would be saving people through faith in Jesus. So much more to talk about in Acts 2, but we're going to, got to move on. In Acts 8, and this is one of those deals, again, we're going to create more questions and answers, give answers, but we got to look at it. It's a passage that's led to a crucial difference in the way Christians understand the baptism of the Spirit. To provide the foundation for the verses that we read, you should know that Philip, who was an important deacon in the early church, had gone to Samaria and preached the gospel. This is the first record of the gospel being preached outside of Jerusalem, and that's important. In Acts 8.12, we, we are told that when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized by, in water, baptized both men and women. Then in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, water baptism. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. It would appear from this text that the believers... These believers were saved when they believed the word and that they were baptized by water at the same time. Later, the apostles came, laid hands on them, and they received or were baptized with the Holy Spirit. What, What happened here was this gospel is being preached in Samaria, and I'm sure some people in Jerusalem, you know, they came back and said, Hey, 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 Philip was up in Samaria preaching the gospel. These people believed and he baptized them. And some of the people in the Jerusalem council said, say, what? I mean, Samaritans were considered impure. They had intermarried with Gentiles. And so they said, come on, you're saying these Samaritans are said, Peter, John, get up there. And so they did. And they saw that what had happened was legitimate. They laid hands on them. And consequently, the Holy Spirit came upon them. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Please know that while I don't have time to give evidence for all of this, this is the only time in the New Testament where we see the baptism of the Spirit occurring apart from salvation. The only time in the New Testament you see the baptism of the Spirit occurring apart from salvation. Anytime you see a salvation experience in the New Testament, there are four things that are happening. First, there's a repentance of sin. Second, belief in Jesus. Third, water baptism. Fourth, spirit baptism. Now, I I need to confess something. I I spend a lot of time talking about one, two, and four. I don't spend nearly enough time talking about water baptism. Water baptism always accompanied faith in the early church, as did spirit baptism in every instance other than this one in Acts Acts 8. But just thinking about water baptism for a minute, may I ask you, have you ever been baptized? Have you? It's a symbol, just like a wedding ring is a symbol. It's not a. I don't believe that baptism is a part of salvation, but I want to tell you, it was inconceivable to early Christians, and it's inconceivable to inconceivable to most Christians today that you would make a profession of faith in Christ and not tell the whole world that you belong to Him by being baptized. If you have not been baptized. I don't believe it's a part of salvation, but I don't see how you can go very far in your walk with the Lord without it. If you've not been baptized, please talk to me. 
this week about it because we're going to have a service next week, a baptismal service next week. And, and, and I would love to talk to you about why I think that's important. But the emphasis today is the baptism of the Spirit. Why is it that this one time in the New Testament it occurs apart from salvation? I've already given a little bit of the background of, of, of Samaria being separate from, from Israel at large and Jerusalem in particular. And, and I'm certain that, that there was question in the, in the Jerusalem council about the validity of this profession and, and their faith. And so they send Peter and John up there. They see what's happened. They lay their hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. God acknowledges His work in their lives by baptizing them with the Spirit. This order would never again be repeated in the New Testament. Ever again in the New Testament. It's the only place Spirit baptism occurs at salvation every other time. I think that the reason is, is that once Peter and John came, when they got on the scene and they laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them, it was very clear to the people back in Jerusalem. Same thing happened to them that happened to us. So it must be the case. Now, there are a lot of people who would say, well, okay, it only happened once, but it did happen once. But it's not theologically consistent to say, and that's the way it should happen every time from now on. You see the inconsistency there, don't you? I mean, could God do it again? Probably. I don't see any evidence for it, though, in Scripture. Any evidence. Remember in Ephesians 4, he said there is one baptism, one Spirit, one Lord, one baptism. That occurs at salvation every other time. For instance, in Acts 10, the gospel advanced from the Jews to the Samaritans, now to the Gentiles. Uh, We're not going to look at Acts 10, but just to give you the story, then we will look at Acts 11 in just a moment. But Peter was in the coastal town of Caesarea. And the Lord said, Peter, got somebody I want you to talk to. And he said, "Uh, who? A Gentile. What about? About me. Ah, Lord, come on. I can't do that. I'm, I'm pure. I'm, I can't go talk to a Gentile. Just wouldn't be right. And the Lord said, what God has cleansed, don't call common, Peter. You're not as hot as you think you are. Get over there. Cornelius had been having a similar vision. He sent for Peter. Peter came. And Peter said, well, the Lord has shown me. I need to be here telling you this message. And as he gave them the message, what message? Of Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon these people. They started speaking with tongues. Peter was convinced. He said, find some water. Mediterranean seas right here. Let's go. They went outside, baptized. Peter was excited about what had happened. But once again in Jerusalem, the news was not very welcome. And they said, Peter, get down here and tell us what happened. So... He did, beginning in Acts eleven fifteen. He's before the church council. And he said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized you with water, John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they got real quiet. That's what that means. They're thinking, they're processing all of this. And they glorified God, saying, 
Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That was a great proclamation for the overwhelming majority of us in this room. Thank the Lord, salvation has come to Gentiles. Do you see how God used the gift of tongues to show the Jews that he was now in the business of saving Gentiles? By the way, we're not told what the manifestation of the baptism of the Spirit was in Acts 8, but very likely it was tongues. Didn't say it. Very likely it was. But God is saying, I'm now doing this. Acts 2, he said, I am now saving Jews through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will come and live in them. Acts 8, he says, I am now saving Samaritans. Acts 10, I am now saving Gentiles. And they had to acknowledge it. It was clear. God did a work that was unmistakable. And by the way, these Gentiles were not required to become Jewish proselytes to where they had to become a part of the Jewish community and then get saved, then believe in Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Peter referred back to Pentecost. He said, you remember how it was, and this was at least 10 years later, he said, you remember how the Holy Spirit came on us back then? Well, he came on these Gentiles in the same way. He didn't say, you know how it is whenever we get together and we're worshiping the Lord and the Holy Spirit falls on us and we start speaking in tongues? No, he said, do you remember, do you remember back then at the first? Same thing happened to the Gentiles. I said, what? God's done this thing. They said that settles it. Well, flying through this, believe it or not, there's only one more place in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, where we read about the gifts of tongues. I'm not going to take the time to put the, the verses up on the screen, but it's at the very first of that chapter. And Paul encountered some of the disciples of John the Baptist. These men had been disciples of John the Baptist way back before Jesus was crucified even, because John the Baptist was martyred before Jesus was crucified. And they had left Israel, didn't know anything about Pentecost, didn't know anything about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But but Paul could tell these are very religious people. And he said, he said, uh, what's your baptism? Have you? They said, we were baptized by John in, in John's baptism. And he said, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they said, we ain't even heard of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? Religious, godly men, as far as we can tell, didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because until after Pentecost, only the disciples knew about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus had talked to them in the, in the, uh, to the degree that he had. But after Pentecost, everybody understands that God is not one. He is three. He is one, but he's three persons. One nature, one essence, but three persons. So they said, we hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. Paul begins to tell them about Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They start speaking in tongues. Why? I think it was to confirm the message that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Salvation is in Him alone. It does not matter how religious, how good, how much you claim to love God. Look, a lot of people talk about God, but they're uncomfortable with the name of Jesus. But the scripture is clear. Apart from Jesus, you don't know God. And that's what was being confirmed on this day when they spoke with tongues. Every place in the book of Acts where we see the gift of tongues, God is confirming the truth of salvation in Jesus. 
The only other place in the New Testament we see any talk about the gift of tongues is in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And in those chapters, he's not talking about the blessing of tongues. He's talking about all the problems associated with people misusing this gift that God has given them. Furthermore, he exhorted the Corinthians to seek after more important and useful gifts, such as teaching. But he does go on to say, do not forbid the use of tongues. And that's the last word we have in the New Testament about it. There are a lot of people who don't believe that tongues are still in play today. I do. I think there's a lot of abuse, misuse, but I think there's legitimate use. I think it happened with my my brother-in-law, and I think it happens in churches. I'm not sure how it happens in churches legitimately. I'm frankly very glad we're not dealing with that in our church because the potential for abuse is there, but there are brothers and sisters who clearly sense that this is God's gift to them, and we need to be careful about how we deal with them. We need to deal gently. And remember Snoopy's theology book. Now, it is important to note this. From the end of the first century right up until the beginning of the 20th century, you rarely, rarely, rarely hear about miraculous gifts and tongues being used by God. That's significant. Way back in Joel, that passage that Peter quoted from Joel was that a lot of people believe that he was talking about the last days and that everything occurred, the, the, the sun turning sort of blood red at the crucifixion and at, on that day of Pentecost and that it was done. A lot of people think it was the beginning of God doing miraculous things and maybe there was this, this um, great time in the middle where it wasn't, but once again we are really in the last days now and so God's pouring out His Spirit this way. Uh, I tend to lean toward the other interpretation that it all happened at at, um, at, at crucifixion and Pentecost, but I'm, I'm not about to say I'm convinced that that's the case. But it is important to note that there was a great period in church history where the gift of tongues just was rarely experienced. So does God use this gift today? I think so. I think many of the abuses that were there in Corinth are, are alive and well today. We've seen repeatedly in this last month or so that, that spiritual gifts are intended for the edification of others, the building up of others, not for our own personal benefit to improve or confirm my personal relationship with God. Personal relationship with God. This is important or else I'd quit right here. We all want a personal relationship with God, don't we? It's a noble desire and pursuit. But we need to recognize there's a difference between a personal relationship with God and a private relationship with God. Personal relationship is not only a possibility, it's a reality for every Christ follower. Everyone who believes in Jesus has a personal relationship. We speak to God, He speaks to us. A private relationship, though, is not granted to anyone. A private relationship is one in which God reveals truth to you that He doesn't reveal to anybody else. You don't get that. Now, God did that for the apostles and prophets before the Word was completed. And they spoke truth directly from God. But even then, it wasn't for them to just have this confirm this relationship with God. It was for the good of the church. It was for the use of the church. Once the word was complete, and we talk about this in our home fellowships a lot this week, then there's not that need for a private 
relationship. There's no promise of that kind of a relationship anywhere in Scripture. Everything that God is going to tell me in my personal relationship with Him is here in His Word. I mean, as a parent, I have three children. They were all different when they were growing up. I had a personal relationship with each one of them. And of course, I said different things to different ones. But the principles that I had for leading my children, my wife and I had for raising our children, were the same. Different applications, different applications of those principles, certainly, but still the same. God speaks to us in His Word. We, we, we sense it differently, we hear it differently, we have to interpret it the same way, but then the application is different. I was going to say something brilliant, just brilliant, but it's gone from me now, so I'm sorry. Now, now for sure, the Holy Spirit must enlighten my understanding in order for me to benefit from the truth of God's Word. But it is equally true that the Holy Spirit of God will not reveal truth in my heart and mind apart from God's Word. I spent a lot of time in 1 Thessalonians 1 this week. You can't believe how much that truth is emphasized over and over. The Spirit, well, of course, we have a conscience. We're convicted before we ever hear the Word. But the Spirit never works apart from God's Word. If we want to be related to God, it has to be through our acceptance, our understanding, and our belief of this Word. Holy Spirit does it all. He helped, He led the people to write it. He confirms this truth in our hearts and minds, and then He applies it for us. Apostles, prophets were given that truth. We get it now from the Word. God is not going to reveal new truth to us, such as there will be fires in New York, if you know what I'm talking about. There may be fires in New York, and I may sense it. The, a word of knowledge, discernment, those gifts of the Spirit, I do believe that people have a sense of what God is doing or, or even what Satan is doing in, in certain things and where, why we need to be aware and, 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 and on guard against how Satan may be moving in our midst. I believe all of that is true. But for me, I don't think any of us want to be held to the standards that God held prophets to in the Old Testament. 100% right or out for a stone shower. It's going to be severe because you're going to be dead from a stoning. Have you ever sensed that God is leading you in a particular way? Then it turned out maybe after you've did what you thought God was telling you to do immediately, or two or three years down the road, you say, oh, boy, I don't think that was God after all. I think that was me. Especially when we want to go rebuking somebody, you know, and and uh, and, and saying, the Lord told me to tell you, eh, you better be careful with that. A lot of times it's just our own desires, our own passions. Please know, and this is almost the last thing, that when I say what I'm about to say, I don't mean to lump everyone who speaks in tongues or believes that the gift of healing and miracles should be prominent in church life today are all of the same mind. I, that's not what I'm saying at all. Please understand that. Sometimes, though, the ones who are focused on these manifestations of God are tempted to believe that they have a private relationship with God and that's very important to them, that God speaks to me like He does not to other people. When a person believes that he or she has a direct line to God that circumvents the Word, then the potential for 
theological error and tremendous damage in the church is great. And the Holy Spirit is not the author of that kind of confusion. Well, it's an awkward place to stop, but it would be even more awkward to keep going as late as it already is. Because the stones may come out. I may not be aware that some of you are carrying stones and uh, you would say that's long enough time to eat. But I hope you have fed on the Word this morning. And like I say, I, I recognize more questions than answers. I hope that you take to heart Snoopy's great title that we don't know everything, but we can make theologically informed decisions. And it's certainly a word of caution, if nothing else, when we think about the miracle gifts of today. I will tell you this. I think that the miracle gifts are are much more prominent in places where there's not a testimony of the Word and in places like Latin America where there's a great deal of spiritual warfare. It's very open and evident. And I think that's one of the reasons Pentecostals are doing so well in Latin America. They're not afraid of spiritual warfare. Most of us are, like my brother-in-law, David. Oh, okay, I'll do it, but uh, I don't want to, you know. So God's working in this world in a, in a big way. But Satan loves to get in the middle of what God is doing. And he is so subtle. So subtle. So let's just be aware. Let's pray. Well, God... Uh, We are grateful that you have not left us uh, without the testimony of your word. Sometimes we recognize it's, it's difficult to understand. That's, that's got to be fairly clear from the fact that so many of us have different opinions and understandings of, uh, uh, of doctrines that are quite important. Not as important as the fundamental non-negotiable truths of the word about which we all agree. But Lord... Uh, Nonetheless, there is a great deal of of difference of opinion. And help us to recognize that you have called us to be unified in Christ. And may we be so. And may we never grieve or quench the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. But be open to Him applying the Word of God to us, through us. And may our lives be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.